The Holy Gospel according to St. John, the 13th chapter. Glory to you, Lord. Please note in verse 31, the first verse of our Gospel, the he refers to Judas. When he had gone out, Jesus said, Now the Son of Man has been glorified, and God has been glorified in him. If God has been glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself, and will glorify him at once. Little children, I am with you only a little longer. You will look for me, and as I said to the Jews, so now I say to you, where I am going, you cannot come. I give you a new commandment, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also should love one another. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. The Gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, Christ. <clears throat> This morning's gospel that we just heard is a tiny slice of the much longer gospel read on Maundy Thursday, the Thursday right before Easter. On Maundy Thursday, I read this very same gospel from this very same pulpit as we worked our way towards Easter. We journeyed together through that Holy Week, remembering the Last Supper Jesus had with his disciples, his crushing betrayal by his friend Judas, and Jesus' subsequent arrest, torture, and crucifixion. But Monday Thursday was almost exactly a month ago, April 18th. So why are we getting the same gospel again today? So long after Easter, we're five weeks into the joyful season of Easter. So why go back to the dark days of Holy Week? Surely the men, and they were men, who organized the lectionary rotation of scripture way back in the mid-60s, had plenty of other gospel texts that they could have chosen for today, passages from scripture that we never get to hear on Sunday, passages that preachers never get to preach on, but they chose this one, the same reading as from Monday, Thursday. Why? In order to understand that, we need to take a look back at last week's gospel where Jesus has this very interesting dialogue with a group of Jews. They ask him, how long will you keep us in suspense? How long will you keep us on the hook? Tell us the truth. Who are you? Jesus responds, I have told you exactly who I am, but you don't believe me. This exchange between the Jews and Jesus takes place in the portico of Solomon, also called Solomon's Porch, a sort of long walkway or colonnade on the western side of the temple's outer court in Jerusalem. Interestingly enough, in last week's Gospel, John notes that it is winter. We cannot make a literal parallel between our brutal Midwestern winters 
and the relatively mild winters in the Middle East. So, with your permission, let's move from the literal to the metaphoric. To speak of winter, then, is not only to speak of a season regarding climate. Winter can also apply to a season of the human soul. Take this exchange between Jesus and the Jews, for example. They want to know who Jesus is, although they have already been told. They want to be let off the hook. They are tired of the suspense. They need reassurance. They want to believe, but they cannot. When the brain is unable to believe what the heart knows to be true, the soul plunges deep into winter. And that is why this gospel comes up again today. Because Judas, that one who had just left the table at the beginning of this morning's gospel, is experiencing a winter in his soul, and a dark and raging one at that. His heart knows that this Jesus is the Son of God, but his brain refuses to let him believe that Jesus has also come for him. Judas is entrenched in self-loathing and despair and makes a deal with the Romans to betray Jesus because his brain has convinced him that there's no possible way that this Jesus has come for him or could ever really love him. Judas does not get to see Easter because his brain stands between him and his heart. Certainly, the winter of the human soul does not have to lead to death, as in Judah's case. When the brain fails to grasp the beauties and the truths that the heart knows, we don't have to die, even by our own hands, as with Judas. If we hang on during those times when all seems lost, when winter seems to howl and rage in our brains, we can detect a certain beauty to winter. If you picture our all-too-familiar Iowa landscape in winter, you can easily imagine barren trees, fruitless and leafless trees that on the outside look dead. Far from being dead, however, in winter, the focus of the tree turns inward. While the tree appears to be dead on the outside, much is happening on the inside. For example, in winter, the trunk of a tree grows another ring, building its core strength to endure the force of spring storms, such as what we're having right now, making it strong enough to bear the weight of fruit in summer. Also in winter, the tree sends its roots deep into the earth to absorb nutrients and develop a strong base. So, there can be life on the inside, even though on the outside there appears to be no life. And the same can be said of people. Although we might be consumed by a raging blizzard in the brain, paralyzing us with thoughts, of fear and despair, rendering us immobile and seemingly lifeless. If our heart digs deep into our roots, roots grounded in Christ, we will find hope. 
a well springing up of eternal life and unconditional love. And if we can survive that season of winter, we grow another ring and are stronger for it. When I was working as a chaplain on the neonatal unit in a hospital in Seattle, one night I was called in to visit with a mom and a dad whose baby had just been born at 22 weeks gestation. I remember walking into the room where their son was hooked up to all of these machines and tubes. He weighed much less than a pound and was barely 10 inches long. On the outside, he did not look alive. He did not cry or squirm as babies do. He was perfectly still, like a doll. And yet he was alive. The machines and the nurses verified this. While my brain could not grasp this, my heart knew it to be true, that he was living, that he was fighting. Although he couldn't be touched because of his delicate skin, his mom asked me to baptize him. How do you baptize a baby if you can't touch him? My Lutheran brain reeled in panic. The mom then begged me to pour the water over her forehead, insisting that God would understand that that water was really pouring over her son's head. She cried, as I would have, during this proxy baptism, and I thought if Jesus can heal the Syrophoenician woman's daughter, who was sick back home, while her mother begged Jesus to heal her. My heart believed that God would see the desperate mother's faith here and have mercy on her son. A year later, my seminary friend and I were traveling one winter's day from Davenport to Dubuque and came upon a car crash that had just happened outside of Hurstville. We were wearing our clergy collars, strangely, because we were practicing preaching that day in seminary. I ran to the driver who had been thrown from his car into the ditch. He told me he was not baptized. I held his head in my hands and realized I had no water. And so I kissed his head three times in the name of the Father and the Son and Spirit, trusting that the moisture of the human kiss was a fair substitute. In both of these situations, I could see the face of my Lutheran confessions professor scowling at me, hearing his words, for the sacrament of holy baptism to be properly done, you need water, God's word, and human touch. But in both of these situations, my brain fully grasped the depth and the breadth and the goodness of God's love, which my heart had always suspected, but my formally trained brain resisted. I realized with eager heart and reluctant brain that sometimes things, even sacraments, cannot be properly done. Therefore, my brain made peace with what my heart knew to be true, that God's love is bigger than proper protocol and is even bigger than Luther's small catechism. What we discover today, in these stormy days of spring, when flowers are being planted and gardens are being dug, as some of you are still battling winter, God begs you to hold on, 
to cling to what your heart knows to be true. That love exists. That there is a new heaven and a new earth coming for you. That Christ descends from heaven as a new groom to you. As you wait as a nervous and trembling new groom. That there is new hope. That life can exist even though on the outside it seems as though life does not exist. In last week's gospel, the Jews are in the winter of their soul, longing for reassurance, craving a word of hope. They teach us that sometimes the brain indeed gets in the way of the things of faith, that right now we see in part the fullness that is to come. The brain hesitatingly concedes to that which the heart knows to be true, that life persists and insists even when death is imminent, that salvation is real even though reason does not support it, that resurrection exists even though it defies human logic. Christ has died, and Christ has risen, and has told us and shown us who he is. Stretch your roots deep towards this truth. I share these things earnestly about the battle between heart and brain. It is a battle I know well. In fact, it is my defining struggle in the relationship I have with Doug, my husband, who is the love of my life, as my heart leaps whenever I see him, and then my brain automatically falsely labels this love as undeserved and therefore untrustworthy. So then, standing all together, we all plead to God to strengthen the heart, to convince the brain that some things are in fact true and good in human relationship and in our relationship to God. May the brain finally learn what the heart knows to be true in human relationships as well as in our relationship to God. May the brain and the heart lay down this exhausting and ridiculous game of tug of war, be married, and find peace and joy. In the meantime, walk with Judas, if you must. Those of you who are still in the winter of your soul, empathize with him, have compassion on him, love him, Forgive him, because although he presents a desperate option for dealing with the winter of the human soul, there is another way. Winter will pass, I assure you. Hold on until spring dawns upon your soul. Claw at hope with your very fingernails until you realize you are stronger for it, that you have gained another ring, that your core has grown stronger, that your roots in Christ and in yourself have grown deeper, and these things worship sincerely. To be attentive to the power of God inside you, stirring you to grow and live and thrive like a strong tree, heavy with leaf and fruit. Some of the most beautiful dialogues I've ever had with people about things such as this have been on a porch, just as Jesus did that day with the Jews. Although Solomon's porch is majestic in colonnades and regal in splendor, 
the porches where I've pondered the same questions with people have not been as regal. They have been on lawn chairs and porch swings with mason jars full of lemonade or iced tea or even gin and tonic. From time to time, then, we all cry out from our porches, God, tell us again who you are, because we have either forgotten or we cannot believe you. And God answers resoundingly and continuously till the ages run out. I am the one who weathers your winter with you. I am with you through all of the seasons of the human soul. I was, I am, and I always will be. Amen.